All right. Good morning, Hagerstown Church. I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And I wish that I could say that it's good to see your face, but, you know, it kind of doesn't work like that. Um, you know, I'm getting a little shaggy. I don't know about you. Uh, so I imagine that you're either getting shaggy like me because you don't want to touch the clippers or you touch the clippers and I don't know, maybe you regret it. Either way, we're really glad that you've joined us as we continue our study in Mark. Uh, but before we jump into the Gospel of Mark this morning, we just want to take a moment and recognize the special nature of today. I hope that you know by now that today is Mother's Day. And today, we just set aside a, a little bit of time just to recognize and to honor the work that moms have done for years and are doing this morning and will do until the end of the human race. <laughs> you know, mothers are putting in long hours and they're doing work that is often thankless and they're uh, keeping the world moving. Can I get an amen from the dads? Uh, Mother's Day celebrates essential work. If there's ever been an essential worker, it's been a mom. And so sincerely, from the bottom of our hearts, from me, from Hagerstown Church, happy Mother's Day. Um, and I know that sometimes it's hard to see the big picture whenever you're changing diapers or you're wiping boogers or you're cooking dinner again, and maybe it's easy to get tunnel vision. Um, but let me just tell you that God really does see your work and God really does honor the labor that you're putting into a job like mothering. And God really does bless and honor that hard work. And we believe here that God is in his infinite wisdom taking little tasks like mothers do every single day, and he's weaving them together into a beautiful story, but not a story about us, a story that's going to bring him the most glory possible. And so moms, thanks for doing it. Um, but we also know that Mother's Day is not exactly a happy day for every single one of us. Um, sometimes Mother's Day can bring up feelings of guilt. Maybe it reminds you of your failures or someone else's failures. Uh, or maybe Mother's Day makes you wish that you're more appreciated than you feel that you are right now. Um, for others, Mother's Day reminds us Maybe of what we don't have. Maybe of what we don't have yet. Maybe of what we don't have anymore. Maybe something that we feel like we're never going to have. And maybe we just try to avoid Mother's Day. But in the midst of saying we're thankful for moms, let's take a moment, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, everybody, um, to remember that the most important thing about us is not what we do. We're not defined by that. We're not defined by whatever job description or whatever hat we can put on right now. Primarily, as we gather and as we celebrate, as we try to remind ourselves over and over, we are sons and daughters of the King. It's not about what you're doing or what you're not doing. It's about the fact that the Lord accepts us only by his grace. That we're children of God just because He's chosen to make us that. And that's the thing that moms and the rest of us, uh, I hope that we can just take a moment to remember that. We are not defined by what we do, but we're defined by what Jesus has done. And you know, that leads us really into what we're going to talk about today. So today we continue our study in Mark. 
And, you know, this week is going to sound a lot like last week, and it's going to sound like what Pastor Josh talked about two weeks ago. This week is kind of like another episode in a mini-series about Jesus and the Pharisees, how they're interacting, what's the nature of their relationship, and honestly, uh, what's a little bit of tension that has been emerging, and, and how are the two parties handling it? So today, we're really going to see, in, a, in even a clearer way than last week, um, a little bit about how the Pharisees' idea of God clashed with the gospel that Jesus came to preach. And believe me, Jesus is not going to back down. John Stott says this about how Jesus is portrayed in the gospels. He says, the popular image of Christ as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, simply will not do. It's a false image. To be sure, he was full of love, compassion, and tenderness. But he was also uninhibited in exposing error and denouncing sin, especially hypocrisy. Christ was a controversialist. And so today, uh, that's the title of our message, and, and that's a quote from a book by John Stott called Christ the Controversialist. And so as we see him today in this passage, and as we're going to see next week and a lot more, Jesus did not stir up controversy for the sake of controversy, but just the nature of the message demanded conflict. And so as we jump in today, here's our main point. If you don't get anything else, if the kids are freaking out, if it's hard to focus, just get this one sentence. Our main point for today is that the gospel is at odds with any attempt to earn acceptance with God. One more time. The gospel is at odds with any attempt to earn acceptance with God. So that's the theme of today. And honestly, that should be the theme of every Sunday. We see it throughout the scriptures. And with that being said, let's turn to our text this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Beginning in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Would you pray with me, church? Lord, we know that when we look at the book, sometimes there can be a number of concepts that aren't very familiar to us. But we believe and trust that your word is full of power and that you're ready to show us the meaning of it and that you're able to bring transformation when we look at the book and when we trust you and surrender our lives to your will. So, Lord, help us to do that. We ask that you would open our hearts and take a look at it and that you would do surgery 
God, don't let us just pick apart the scriptures like a critic, but Lord, open our hearts and do the sort of surgery that only you're able to do. Show us the conditions that our hearts are really in, and then show us the hope that you're offering through the Lord. We ask that you would do that today as we study the word together, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So today, while we're studying, I want you to notice two things as we look at this text. One, there's a growing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, a conflict that started before this week and is going to continue into next week's sermon. And that conflict stems from an irreconcilable difference between how the Pharisees think they can be accepted by God and Jesus' idea about the very same thing. So first, let's notice a growing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. I want to tell you a story about a man named Nick Ripken. Nick Ripken was a missionary in some of the most dangerous places on earth for over 30 years. And at the conclusion of his time overseas, uh, he wrote a book called The Insanity of God. And he included several experiences that he had as he noticed and and watched and participated in God working in several exciting, dangerous, exotic places all across the world. And so one story that stuck out to me and that kind of illustrates something about this passage is a time when he was preaching in Malawi, a country in Africa. And so imagine this. There's a missionary from America in Malawi in a, a small hut with a dirt floor. And he's preaching the gospel there. And there's about 25 uh, people listening to him preach, sitting on the dirt floor uh, and him on this this rickety little platform uh, with a with a podium up there. And um, so he's surrounded by 25 Malawians. I guess that's the word for it. And uh, his wife and his two blonde haired, blue eyed little kids. And so as he preaches, um, and gets into the the message, uh, he notices that uh, something happens that makes him a little uncomfortable, and so does uh, it makes him his wife uncomfortable too. Uh, as he really gets into the meat of the text, uh, people begin to get up from their seats, and uh, it started with just one guy. He got up off the ground and he uh, walked up next to Nick, and um, he just kind of like stood at ease next to him and folded his arms and just continued to listen to the rest of the sermon, uh, but just standing really close to him and making him a little uncomfortable. And the more points that Nick made about the gospel, the more men that got up and did the exact same thing, standing right next to him, not saying a word, not even smiling, just right there. And so he grew uncomfortable, but he didn't really say anything. And later, whenever he talked to his wife about it, she said, yeah, I had no idea what was going on either. But by the time they were done, almost everybody in the building had gotten up and stood next to Nick while he preached. And at the very end, they just acted like nothing happened and they thanked him for his time and they went on about their business. So they found out later that the reason why people were doing that is that uh, in Malawi, There's a custom in the churches that if you agree with the preacher, that you get up and you stand next to him because you say, I stand with him. 
I agree with what he's saying, and I'm on his side. I mean, now we just, you know, over here we just say amen, and, like, you should keep doing that. <laughs> like, whenever we start meeting again, you probably shouldn't do the other thing, because it freaked me out, and I'm sure it would freak Josh out, too. Um, but that visual is a striking thing. I stand with that guy. I agree with what that guy says. And so, if Jesus was in a culture where that was the case, when this passage plays out, there would not be a lot of men standing next to him. In fact, there wouldn't be very many people at all standing next to Jesus. The Pharisees were not buying what Jesus was selling. That That's for sure. And so there was a building conflict, uh, and you can feel it almost boiling over by the time you get to this point in Mark chapter 2. So let's trace this, because you can see in Pastor Josh's sermon two weeks ago, this, this conflict begins, and it only grows and grows and grows, even though it hasn't boiled over yet. So let's go back to the beginning of chapter 2 and kind of see where this is coming from and maybe get a picture of where it's going. So in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, Jesus heals the paralytic, and then it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, saying, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're basically saying, Who does this guy think he is? Forgiving sins? Healing people? Who gave him that authority? It's a great question, but they're asking it with doubt in their hearts, and the tension begins. Look down in verse 16 of chapter 2. He calls out to Levi, remember from last week, uh, Levi leaves everything and follows him, and immediately they get back to Levi's house and throw a big banquet. And here Jesus is eating with tax collectors, sinners, and, and all sorts of folks. What's the Pharisees' response? Verse 16. They say, why? Does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So they're questioning, and, and they're not on board with Jesus' methodology. That's for sure. And Jesus is basically saying back to them, I didn't come to start some religious club with the Pharisees. I didn't come to do this the way that you're doing it at all. And Pharisees, honestly, you're doing it the wrong way. Remember when he talked about how the people that are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. Um, the conflict is building in that moment. And then verse 18, uh, where we've read this week, uh, you see the Pharisees basically saying, why aren't you following the religious, religious rules that we're setting out? And next week, we'll definitely see this conflict come into a head. Uh, Jesus, basically, spoiler alert, sorry, Jesus is going to box the Pharisees into a corner. And then the Pharisees are going to end up uh, plotting about how to destroy Jesus. And that's kind of where it's going to be left for the time being. But you see that obviously they're not on the same page about some very important things. And so that really brings us to our text for today, right? So imagine the scene. The Pharisees are fasting, John's disciples are fasting, and then they walk up on Jesus and his disciples, and these guys are throwing a party. And they say, how in the world are you even living in the same universe as us? 
You say you're one of us. But you don't look like us. And you don't act like us. And this doesn't make any sense. You're not acting like a good Jew. And that's kind of a showstopper for me. That's what they say. So let's take a step back and say, what the heck is going on here? Why do the Pharisees care about this? And where's all this coming from? And so basically, let's just define uh, where the Pharisees are coming from and why they're acting like this. The Pharisees are what you could call legalists. So they're legalists, meaning that they thought that they had the power to put themselves in a right standing with God because of what they did. They thought if they obeyed all of the rules good enough, that God would be happy with them. Sound familiar? The Pharisees, coming from that perspective, said that if all of these things are set out in a way in which I can understand and achieve, and I achieve it, then that's what the Lord wants. And because of that mindset, the Pharisees had a unique ability. I love this. I don't love this, but I love this. I hope you understand. The Pharisees had a unique ability to turn blessings into burdens. To turn blessings into burdens. You ever met somebody like that? They just are, they're just messing it up. They're just throwing off the vibe. And uh, so think about the last couple of weeks from that perspective. The Pharisees walking up, seeing the works of Jesus, and somehow transforming a blessing into a burden. So back to the paralytic. When Jesus heals the paralytic, they see an indisputably beautiful and miraculous thing happen. A man healed of paralysis. And they skip past the miracle because they had doubts about Jesus' credentials. Here's a picture of the kingdom, healing, restoration, joy, right in front of them. And they doubt and they miss it because they doubt Jesus' street cred. Think about Levi. He did a total 180, followed Jesus, and then prepared this big meal. That's a picture of heaven. People from all backgrounds and no one meriting the favor, all at the same table enjoying the presence of Jesus. And you know, they looked straight at that and uh, they couldn't get past the social status of the people Jesus invited to the party. And they felt burdened because of that. And this week, with the issue of fasting, Jesus stands right in front of them and says, when the bridegroom is here, then you won't fast. And that may not be clear at the first reading, but he's saying, I, Jesus, am the bridegroom, the Old Testament picture of the Messiah. I'm the point of your whole religion, and I'm standing right here talking to you. And when I'm here, there's no need to fast. And so they look right past that and um, turn it into a burden. They were more concer concerned about whether Jesus was following rules that weren't even in the Bible. So just, just think about it. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom and I am right here. And there's no need to fast. There's only reason to party because the Messiah has come. You would think that whenever Jesus would say a statement, that paradigm shifting, that it'd be followed by an earthquake or a lightning bolt or, or something that really says, 
Y'all look. Kind of an exclamation point. But he says it, and it falls on deaf ears, like it so often does. And um, the Pharisees uh, can't fit it into their system of rules, and so they don't respond to it. One pastor says, There's nothing that infuriates a legalist more than people who don't obey the rules. I can identify with that a little bit. In my heart, I'm looking for a way to get it all right. Because if I do, yay me. I got it. I figured it out. You got anything else for me, Jesus? That's where our hearts are. So many times. It's where my heart is. Um, But there's nothing that infuriates a legalist more than people who don't obey the rules. So let's dig into this a little bit about uh, what's the rules behind fasting, because you may not be so familiar with it. Um, but the Pharisees really are adding something into the scriptures, kind of like, you know, putting something there just so that they can achieve it. Uh, so take a look at this. You don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 11. Um, this is when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and how their prayers sound totally different and how it reveals something about their heart. So in verse 11, the Pharisee begins to pray. And he says, standing by himself, the Pharisee prayed like this. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So this prayer right here, as, as my prayers do and as all of our prayers do, they, they reveal something about the heart of the Pharisee. And it's evident here that as he prays, the Pharisee's standard is other people. Am I better than that guy? Am I doing this better than most people? He prays in a way that shows you that he's trying to justify himself by his own actions. He says, I tithe. A tenth of everything that I get. Another passage says down to his spice rack he tithes out of. And I don't only fast when the scriptures say to. I fast twice a week. I'm a double faster. You know, the only time in the scriptures that it's commanded for Jewish folks to fast is found in Leviticus chapter 16 for the Day of Atonement. And there are other places in the Old Testament where it's recommended and helpful to fast. And and some other day we should talk about fasting in greater detail. But the only time that it's ever commanded to fast is on the Day of Atonement. But then the Jewish faith and the Jewish leaders go a little farther and they put their own rules on top of that. And by the time Jesus had come around, it was recommended um, to fast twice a week. And so those rules on top of that were what the Pharisees were striving for. And they said, I've, I've, I've achieved that. I can justify myself because I know the rules and I follow them better than you. So that's a picture of, of the heart of the Pharisees. And Jesus came to say that you could never put yourself in a right standing with God by what you do. 
Jesus came to say something that just didn't even fit in the box of the Pharisees. He said the issue is not about what the Pharisees do, or what I do, or what you do, or what your neighbor does. The issue is about what Jesus is about to do in the scriptures, and what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. Pastor Alistair Begg says, Some of us don't trust the Lord because we like the idea of earned acceptance with God, because it puts us in a better light. You don't like this idea that the worst, most miserable, and immoral person is in Christ, covered over with his righteousness, accepted and restored, and all because of another person's work and not their own. This sort of message will always get stuck in the throat of a Pharisee. So here we see a growing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and it comes down to the legalism in the heart of these guys. So we'll notice that conflict, but then second, we'll see that this conflict is coming from an irreconcilable difference between the Pharisees' message and the gospel that Jesus is preaching. So we'll notice this irreconcilable difference. So down to verse 21, Jesus continues with two parables that are going to apply to the fasting situation but they're also going to apply to the last two weeks of sermons, too. They explain the broader significance of why Jesus even came to earth in the first place. And the same point is made in both of these examples, and we'll break them down as we read them. Uh, but Jesus is saying, simply, I can't be an add-on to whatever belief system that you have. I'm a completely different category. The old Mosaic regulations and extra-biblical standards of the religious leaders in Jesus's time, they had to give way to Christ. Jesus right here is ushering in a new era with new ways and a totally different worldview. And as we look at him and compare him to the culture today, he would demand the very same thing. So listen again, starting in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So let's break this down a little bit. Wineskins and sewing unshrunk cloth. That's it's not things that we think about very often. But basically, uh, trying to just add Jesus onto your religion is incompatible, and it ruins the old religion and the new gospel. It just doesn't work. So let's talk about the cloth for a minute. I know uh, uh, not a lot of us sew. Some of us in the church sew. I, I know that. It would have helped if I knew how to sew uh, back when we were all getting masks. But I know that sewing is, is a foreign concept to, to some folks. Uh, and especially sewing unshrunk cloth. I mean, in my personal guy experience, I know that a lot of t-shirts come pre-shrunk, so we don't even really think about that. Uh, but what Jesus is saying here is that if you have unshrunk cloth that you're sewing on, and then the clothes get wet when you wash them... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> can you tell how unfamiliar I am here? So when you wash the clothes... Uh, 
then the cloth will contract. And as it contracts, it's not going to stay on there. It's going to rip another hole and the hole's going to get even bigger um, than the first one that you tried to patch. So you've got this ruined patch and you've probably got something else ruined that you cut this patch off of. And then you've got the shirt that you tried to fix, which is like even worse than, than you had at the beginning. And then let's talk about the wineskin. Um, it was a container, it was a bottle basically for wine. And uh, they didn't use glass bottles like we do now. They, uh, they used something in, in this context that was made of goat skin. And they did that because the goat skin would be uh, flexible and it would even stretch a little. And uh, our glass bottles don't do that. So you might be wondering, what's the point of that? But they would put the wine in as the fermentation process was continuing. And as the bubbles would come up and the gas would be released as the wine was aging, then they needed something that would stretch out so that the wine would have room to, to age well. So over time, wineskins would get old and brittle and uh, you couldn't use them over and over and over because it wouldn't have the same impact. So if you put new wine into these old brittle skins and it doesn't stretch, then it's gonna bust. Then all of a sudden, the wineskin that you tried to use is gone and then <laughs> Man, the wine is gone. Well, what's the point in that? It's a terrible idea. So the point is, Jesus is bringing something that's completely new into the world. He's preaching this gospel that's brand new and, and doesn't fit into the old system of thought that the Pharisees were holding. And he's saying, if you try to take in my message and put it into a frame of self-righteousness, then it's just not gonna work. It's gonna burst through your old system. It's too big, it's too glorious. It can't be contained by your efforts to justify yourself. Jesus's message tears apart our idea of earned acceptance with God. Not only is Jesus's message at odds with the message of the Pharisees, it'll tear it apart Where are you at today, brother, sister? Are you buying into that sort of worldview? Maybe you say that you believe in the gospel and, and that people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but a little bit of that works mentality has crept in. And you say, the Lord can't love me if I'm not faithful in reading my Bible every single day. The Lord can't love me if I'm not as good at sharing the gospel as this other person that I know. Um, and as thoughts like that multiply, then the cancer of self-righteousness can just take us over. And even though we do believe, we can be almost paralyzed and rendered ineffective by works-based righteousness. Or maybe you're listening to this and, and you don't believe in the gospel anyway, you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. And you would say, well, what makes this any different than any other religion that's meeting weekly and uh, worshiping around the world? I don't understand. I still don't get what's so different about this. Well, I think the difference can be summed up really well in a story that David Platt tells. So one time, as David Platt was sitting outside of a temple 
in Asia, talking to two other guys of different religions, um, he heard about how they were talking about all three religions represented there were fundamentally the same, and, and they were just kind of superficially different. So um, this missionary, he listens for a while, uh, but finally he just can't help himself, and he speaks up, and he says, you know, so many folks picture God, and whatever you want to call him, Allah, Buddha, Jesus, etc. Uh, so many people picture him at the top of the mountain, and all of us are at the bottom of the mountain looking to way, make our way up to him. And um, people will say, you may take this path, and I may take this path, but all of these paths will lead to the summit eventually. And they said, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I'm glad you're paying attention. That's exactly what we're talking about. So he smiles and, and he looks back at them and he says, well, what if I told you that God, who was at the top of the mountain, has made a path down to man? And even though nobody reaches the summit that takes any of these paths, God chose to come down from the summit and to get us and take us up with his own strength and his own energy. What if the story really was that God came down? And they said, well, that would be great. That doesn't sound believable, but that would be awesome. And then he responds with this. He says, this is the difference. The Bible tells the story of a God who has not left us alone to try and find our way to him. The Bible says that God has come to us and he has made the way to himself through Jesus. And so when we hear that and we see that, we say the gospel is at odds with every attempt in any religion or any non-religious person's heart to earn acceptance with God. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, if there's one stitch in the celestial garment of a Christian's righteousness that we ourselves had to insert, then we would be lost. It truly is our salvation and our walk with the Lord every single day is not contingent on our own goodness or our own ability, ability to perform or be obedient or our own ability to be self-controlled and not screw up. Our faith is rested on the bedrock of Christ's righteousness and that alone. And so many times, even though we wouldn't even admit it, other things are creeping in, and that's why we're feeling mired by guilt and mired by ineffectiveness and feeling like the Lord is not pleased with us. The only reason that we're feeling that is because we've not had a fresh understanding of the gospel. So let me close with this. And this you might think that this is a weird way, but um, I'm going to close with uh, the inscription on a, a tombstone, an, an epitaph. Um, so stay with me. I, I know it is a weird idea, but um, John Barrage was a preacher in the 18th century, so the 1700s in England. And uh, if you have time to read about him, he's a fascinating guy and had an effective ministry. But perhaps the most memorable thing that he said or written uh, was inscribed on his tombstone. And so just picture yourself walking through a graveyard, reading the inscriptions 
and um, coming upon something like this. And, you know, I imagine it didn't have to be a, a big tombstone because it's kind of a long thing. So bear with me and you're going to see where we're going here. So it says, Here lie the remains of John Barrage, late vicar of Everton, and an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ, who loved his master and his work, and after running on his errands many years, was called up to wait on him above. So that's just part one. Here's where it gets good. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716. I remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730. I lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754. I don't know if you're doing the math, but he's 38 at this point. I was admitted to Everton Vicarage, 1755. So he becomes a pastor, 39 years old, still living proudly on faith and works. So admitted to Everton Vicarage, 1755. Fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756. And then fell asleep in Christ, 22nd January, 1793. So this man admits and proclaims to anyone that would read that he trusted in faith and works for salvation until he was 40 years old. And he became a pastor at 39. He trusted in faith and works throughout his teens, 20s, and 30s, and lived as a Christian, but lived in a way that the Lord was not pleased with. But thank God. He fled to Jesus alone for salvation. Can you imagine that scenario? Can you imagine uh, what you would have done in that situation? People knowing that you're a Christian for years and years and years, saying that you have a profession of faith, even coming into the ministry and being somebody's pastor, and then coming to the realization that you've been living a works-based righteousness all this time, and then fleeing to Jesus for refuge. How great must the pressure have been on him to just keep up appearances? How much did he feel that he had to lose socially in order to flee to Jesus at 40? Well, apparently, as the Spirit worked on him, none of that mattered compared to the grace that Jesus was offering. And that's where I want us to end our time today. Where are you at, brother, sister, in your walk with the Lord? Would you say that uh, you're ignorant of your fallen state? We hope that the message today has shed some light on, on what um, man's sin looks like and the kind of grace that God's offering. Would you say that you're living proudly on faith and works for salvation? The Lord offers grace. Would you say that you're serving in the church right now while still trying to uh, base your righteousness on how much good you can do? Or are you continually fleeing to Jesus for refuge? We'd love to talk to you uh, if uh, the Lord has put a burden on your heart. We, we'd love to help you work through any sort of um, questions that you might have. And if you do have them, feel free to comment on this video. Feel free to send us a private message on Facebook or 
uh, feel free to call or text, uh, and we'd be glad to lend an ear and, and to show you what the scriptures say about what you're going through. Um, but that'll end our time for today, and I'd like to close us in prayer. Uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that by your grace, we'd receive this message and flee to you. Help us to turn from temptation continually. Help us to turn from the call to be self-righteous and to, to judge our standing with you by what good we can do. Help us to see ourselves in light of the gospel, which says that we're more sinful than we can imagine, but more loved because of the cross than we could have ever been otherwise. Help us to trust the message that we know to be true and to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hagerstown Church, go in that same grace and apply this message as you walk joyfully for the Lord this week. Hagerstown Church, you are sent.